Well, welcome everybody. And uh, if you haven't gotten a handout, there's uh, hopefully some there on the stand. And uh, we're going through the doctrine of the church, talking about what is the church according to the Bible, and what does it mean to, uh, practically speaking, live out these truths about the church. Um, and part of what we're fighting against is just this really individualistic thrust of our culture, um, where we've gotten to this stage, which would have been unthinkable um, prior to, I don't know, past hundred years ago or so. Um, it would have been unthinkable to be a Christian, to claim to be a Christian, and yet have nothing to do with the visible church. And yet there are tons of people who name the name Christian, and yet have nothing to do with the visible church. And they think that's fine. Uh, they think it's fine to basically have this kind of private relationship, me and Jesus, but have nothing to do with other believers. And so last time we were talking about the um, importance of gifts, the fact that the Spirit gives gifts to the churches, the fact that, um, you know, we're all gifted in different ways, the way our body parts all have different abilities, um, and we're all meant to work together as one. Now we're going to talk about, um, as, we, as we think about how the church is spread in the world, how do we know when we're looking at the church? How do we know if we've been, we've been talking about what is the church? Okay, let's now take the next step. How do you know that when you're looking at a local congregation or at a deno denomination, that you're actually, it is the church that you're seeing? And part of why this is so important is it's true now, and it was true in the very first century, the very first generation of Christians, that there are counterfeit churches. It's called, they're called synagogues of Satan in Revelation 2, 9, 3, 9. And, and you remember from... Um, Revelation 2 through 3, those letters to the seven churches. Do you remember how, in some cases, things had gotten so bad that Jesus, the risen Lord of the church, was very stern in his warnings to some of those churches where he said, if you guys don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from before me. What, what is he saying when he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from before me? What's the implication? Yeah, Betty? Yeah, excommunicate the church. In other words, they could keep on gathering and they could keep on naming the name even of Jesus and say they're a Christian church, but Jesus no longer recognizes them as such. That's, that's a very sobering thought, right? And that's something we always need to be remembering is that these churches once were strong, and now they've gotten to the point where the Lord of the church is saying, hey, last chance, time to change. <laughs> So we never want to get to that place where we're saying, um, oh, that would never happen to us. Right? We always want to have that humble heart that says, well, um, we need to be careful always to be reformed by the word, lest that happen to us too. So how do you know if a church is not counterfeit? And there's lots of reasons why this is important. Can any of you think of why would it be important to know if a church is a counterfeit church? There are lots of good reasons. Why should we care whether church is counterfeit or not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like in terms of um, our friends who we want to encourage to follow Jesus, we want to send them to a true church where they're not going to be 
led into condemnation. What else? Why, why else would this be important? Yeah, we ourselves, right? Um, you know, here you all are, are members of this church, but what if the Lord calls you somewhere else? Um, how will you know where to worship? How will you know where to go? And even sometimes uh, we're on travel and we need to figure this out just on a temporary basis, right? So that's another good reason. Any other reasons you can think of for why it's so important that we know whether a church is true or counterfeit? What about the people we partner with, right? Um, as a church, we need to be thinking about our partnerships. We're going to actually land here, hopefully, by the end of this lesson. We need to understand, like, hey, we, we want to be partnering with other Christian churches, right? <laughs> we want to build bridges and, and um, paths of unity with other churches. Well, we have to be able to identify the church to do that, right? So how do we know the true church when we see it? The Reformation identified three marks. Um, and Acts 2 already has uh, most of these marks in it, you know, the church that dedicated itself to the breaking of bread and to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, right? That's from the very beginning what marked the church. And then when you distill these things down, um, the reformers came up with these three marks. First is sound preaching of the scriptures. Sound preaching of the scriptures. And of course, everything is based, everything's, uh, this begs the question, right? Like, what is meant by sound, right? And it goes all the way back to the very first uh, generation of Christians that they developed this concept of what's called the rule of faith. And we see this uh, over and over again in very early Christian writings. These little summaries of the Christian faith, talking about what Jesus came to do and um, what, does it, what does it mean to believe in the true and living God. Um, eventually, that coalesced into the Apostles' Creed and then was later developed into the Nicene Creed in 325. Um, but um, just remember some of these texts. I want to I read to you just from a couple of these. Um, Galatians chapter 1. This is, this is why the gospel is like, if you have it, you're good. If you don't have it, you're not good. Um, Galatians 1 verse 6, um, we'll get a little bit of a lead up. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. In other words, it's not really a gospel. It's not really good news. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, the apostle Paul, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. Let him be accursed. And he says it again. Look, the gospel is life for the church. Where there is no gospel, where there might be, say, a lot of, like, moral teaching, like, be good to one another, be kind to one another, um, all that kind of stuff. But there's nothing about, um, yeah, and we're not good. <laughs> So therefore, we need Jesus, who really did die and really did rise again from the dead for our justification. Then there is no soundness. There is no life or health in the church. And um, another passage that shows this is Revelation 3, um, talking to Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So there needs to be this sound preaching of the word, or there is no life in a church. So we have the sound preaching of the scriptures, the right administration of the sacraments. This is one of the marks of the church. Remember, Jesus says, go, make disciples. He doesn't just say teach them. He also says baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the apostles, um, the, the early church dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also to the breaking of bread and to um, celebration of the Lord's Supper as Jesus had required. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have the right administration of the sacraments, and then we have faithful church discipline. There's a bunch of texts I gave, um, just some of the key texts that show this is a key part of um, what Jesus has required of the church. And what is, what is discipline? Discipline is requiring members to not just believe the gospel, but also to live consistently with the gospel. You remember the passage I just read, Revelation 3? I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Right? So it's not just faith. It's not just like, do we have the right intellectual idea of this? But we're actually now living in light of what God has required us to do. And this implies a couple things. In order for there to be church discipline, in other words, putting somebody out of the church who is not following the teaching or the practices, core practices of the church, there needs to be, therefore, somebody who makes that decision, some mechanism. And there's a lot of diversity in the churches of how this plays out. Um, Sometimes it's the entire church that votes on this. Other times, in some cases, like Episcopal arrangements, it's one person who makes that, calls that shot. In our understanding of church government, which we'll defend later, um, it is a plurality of elders who is entrusted with the keys of the kingdom and shepherding um, and making that critical decision. So there needs to be some kind of leadership, some way of authoritatively determining who's in and who's out. And then also implying that this implies, uh, it's not like you can point to one scripture and say, look, church membership is biblical, boom. There's this one verse that says, says it right there. But there's all kinds of verses, and we'll spend an entire lesson talking about this, that show that membership is just all written, under, underwritten in, in, the, in the basic premises of so much of the teaching of the New Testament. There needs to be, in order for someone to be actually put out of the church, there needs to be some way of reckoning who's in, and that implies a membership. So these three things— sound preaching, right administration of the sacraments, faithful church discipline. If you have these things, even if there's lots of things that we would want to say, okay, that's unbiblical, or that's not good, or that's unhealthy, nevertheless, you have a church. Let me just nuance this a little bit, and then we're going to practice, put these into practice here. But you can have, on this understanding, you can have a denomination that's truly a church, So think about that. The denomination meets these standards, right? While individual congregations within that denomination are dead. And you can also have um, a dead um, denomination where what's going on in the denominational level is completely bankrupt. But actual individual congregations, there are still real, true churches, Um, So that's important as well. In other words, we shouldn't just look at a denomination, what they say, and say, oh, well, look at this hideous stuff that they're deciding here at the denominational level, and then assume every single one of the churches in that denomination are not true churches. 
right? Um, there could be actual holdouts of faithfulness. And even within a dead church, there can be true Christians who somehow <laughs> are living um, under terrible teaching, right? Or terrible practices. And yet, Christ has made them alive with himself. He's sustaining them through all kinds of mysterious ways. One other important nuance to make is that a true church is not necessarily a healthy church. So the three marks that I just gave you, that's kind of like bare minimum. If you have these three things, you have a church. But that doesn't mean you have a healthy church. And Mark Deaver um, famously developed these nine marks of a healthy church. I think these are, this is a helpful list. Um, is there expositional preaching? It's not just sound preaching in the basic sense of like, here's truths from the scriptures, here's the basic gospel message, but are they actually unfolding the Bible for you and talking about the Bible? Is it with an eye towards integrating the Bible into a whole biblical theology? Are we hearing the gospel every single Lord's Day from the pulpit? In other words, not just do these things, but here's what Jesus has done for you, so therefore do these things. Is there a biblical understanding of conversion where you really do need not just to um, say you're Christian, but actually repent of your sins and now start walking in newness of life? Is there a biblical understanding of evangelism where we're actually going out and telling people, hey, you need Jesus or there is no hope? Um, are we actually doing evangelism, we should add, right? Um, is there a biblical understanding of church membership uh, where people are actually being held accountable for their membership vows and we're really understanding, hey, these are the people we're shepherding. Is there truly church discipline happening in a healthy way, not just in a minimalistic way, but in a healthy way meaning we're not just going to um, remove people that are outside of our um, understanding of like, you know, these people, um, you know, these people don't belong or something like that, but it's more like, are we doing church discipline with an eye towards restoration? That's the true meaning of church discipline. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, handing this person over to Satan so that they might repent and come back. That's what we really want, right? A, tr a concern for discipleship, we're really investing in our people and biblical forms of leadership. These are all things that mark a healthy church. So any thoughts on any of these about the three marks of, a, of an actual church and nine marks of a healthy church? Let's put it in practice. So I want you to evaluate these different groups based on my criteria. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is it a church? Okay, how do you know? Say it again, I just didn't hear you. No sound teaching from the scriptures. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And, and remember, the Church of Latter-day Saints um, is, is the Mormons, okay? So, like, is there a gospel there? No, there, it's a, basically a works-based cult, right? So they may claim, I mean, they, they're, the, the title of their church is Church of Jesus Christ. And yet, we must not be deceived, right? What about a parachurch campus ministry that is preaching the gospel and leading people into um, righteousness and holiness, unfolding the Bible? Is that a church? Okay, why not? <clears throat> no sacraments, yeah, and, and no discipline either. 
Right, and, and there could actually be a form of discipline, so in the sense that, like, um, somebody in this campus ministry won't be allowed to be part of the leadership of the ministry because they don't have um, biblical lifestyle or something or biblical beliefs. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's no, like, baptizing or um, giving of the Lord's Supper in these. And unfortunately, yes, some campus ministries do do that. And at that point, there's started, starting to be this blurring of the line, right? Um, yeah, now, I, the reason why I bring this up is because um, I was part of a campus ministry. In fact, I was saved through a campus ministry um, and grew tremendously through it and, in fact, became staffed with this ministry. Um, and, you know, I love the people in this ministry. I, I think they're absolutely outstanding Christian people. And yet one of the things that um, eventually led my wife and I to move on from it was the realization that, hey, um, they're doing the work of the church, teaching, uh, discipling, without actually having the marks of the church. Um, now, this isn't true of all campus ministries. Um, uh, Reformed University Fellowship is a ministry of the PCA, our, our um, you know, b- a beloved uh, sister denomination, uh, Presbyterian Church in America. And, you know, this is where all the guys in RUF are actually ordained ministers of the gospel, held accountable for their teaching by the presbytery that they're in. They are um, seeking to integrate the students that they lead to Christ and disciple on campus into the visible church, right? So there's a local church they're partnering with saying, hey, now you believe in Jesus, great. Go to this church to be baptized and profess your faith and become a member, right? What, what would be a person missing if they're a college student and they become a Christian and yet they say, well, I don't need to be join a church because I've got this awesome Christian fellowship where I just get tremendously good teaching and I'm growing leaps and bounds. What are they missing? Yeah, the, all kinds of things. It's not just the sacraments, but it is that. Um, uh, not just accountability of the elders, right? Having people who are watching over your soul. But then also, um, like you said, the use of their gifts for the blessing of the body and the body blessing them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in a campus ministry, you're surrounded by people who are basically the same age as you and all of that. What do you get when you're in a, a local church? Well, you get a huge variety of ages and, and, um, and that wonderful diversity of the, the people of God. Yeah, so I, I, love, um, I love the parachurch ministry by, from which I, by which I was saved. I'm so thankful for them. Um, and yet I do think that the evangelical church is just absolutely in love with the sort of pragmatic approach of parachurch ministries. There's lots of parachurch ministries, right? And some of them are good because they're not really um, trying to do things um, that, that really are the province of the church, like teaching the word. Um, they're, they're doing other things that are really helpful, like um, I really like Samaritan Ministries that is um, like a health-sharing ministry where um, you're, you're helping to share medical bills with other believers. Like, that's awesome. That's great that there isn't like a visible church that is kind of having to deal with all those details. Rather, believers are getting together and saying, hey, let's help each other out. Um, But um, we want to be careful 
not to elevate things, even really like awesome teaching places um, above the visible church as if they were a replacement for it. Okay, what about this? A group of believers meeting weekly in a home for the word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, and encouragement. Is that a church? Apply the three. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Good. Right, right. So there are certain contexts where this may be the only way that people can gather. What, what were you thinking, Doug? Right. Sometimes churches are really small. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, we have to ask ourselves, are there these three marks? So I already mentioned that there's, there's sacraments going on there, right? Is there faithful church discipline? In other words, is there a true sense of like, okay, we are, we are holding each other accountable for what the scriptures teach. There's a true sense of this person is part of the people of God, and this person is just considering it, thinking about it, right? So I think this is kind of a fuzzy one. Um, it's not necessarily um, inc- incorrect to say that some of these instances are true churches. Um, okay, what about a Christian college? Is a Christian college a church? Now, you may ask yourself, like, why did you put this one on here? Like, duh, of course it's not a church, <laughs> it's a college. Well, uh, the reason why I put it on there is uh, when I was at Wheaton College, they would occasionally do all-school communion. And what are they doing? They're at the chapel. They are doing the Lord's Supper for every Christian there in this college. That's a problem, right? They're not a church. They are not authorized to do that. Um, and they may say, that, well, we're, we're all Christians here. I mean, you have to sign a statement of faith to be, become a, you know, a student stuff. Like, why not? Well, hopefully you remember, uh, some of you were here for the sacraments uh, Sunday school class a little while back, but part of what's going on in the sacraments is a, an authoritative saying of the, of the church, you are in, you are part of the people of God. Um, as the Westminster Confession says, the sacraments make a visible mark between those who are in the church and those who are in the world, Right? Only those who are entrusted with the keys of the kingdom ought to make such a decision, ought to um, make, do, do such an act, right? Um, the administrators of a college, however well-meaning, are not entrusted by the risen Lord with the, the authority to do this sign of his people, okay? So, um, no, a Christian college is not a church. And there's one more reason why I put this on here. There's just so many uh, college students who are at Christian colleges, including very, like, you know, zealous Christian colleges that require chapel all the time, who say, like, look, I've got, I'm being fed. I, I've got what I need here. I don't need to worship with God's people on the Lord's Day. I, I, I got a lot of homework to do, <laughs> right? right? That's not okay. That's not okay. But that's, what's, what's happening is now we're substituting the college for the church. Okay, here's one more that's it's a bit thorny, a bit, bit challenging, but the Roman Catholic Church, is it a true church? Yes. 
based on the sacraments. Okay, why why is that? Yeah. Yeah, so on, w- on one, one level, there's, you know, what, what do they think is happening in the Lord's Supper? They actually are believing that it's being transformed. The, the bread and wine are being transformed into the body and blood of Christ physically. Um, so there's, there's a misunderstanding of what the sacraments are about um, and what did Jesus actually, what is actually taught in his word about them. Um, okay, so that's, that's uh, regarding criteria two. What else? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there can be elements of that, uh, of um, idol, uh, I, basically raising the saints or Mary to a level of God. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Anna. Yeah. I feel like it, it's fuzzy for the same reasons. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying there because part of what you're saying is, look, there's a lot of poor teaching, um, like what you were saying, things that go against the Bible, right? Um, but there are certainly pockets within the Roman Catholic Church where there are people telling others the gospel, and there are certainly, um, you know, there's true theology about who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the, um, who is Jesus? He's truly, truly God, truly man. Um, there's baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Um, but I want you to keep thinking about these three criteria because I think there's other things that, that are a bit fuzzy here as well. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was hoping, yeah, someone would notice this, yeah. Yeah, there's the, the, the complete absence, almost complete absence of discipline where People don't believe at all. They're living in unbelievable sin, and yet they're still recognized as members. Um, there's a real absence there of church discipline. And just, just to follow up with the first thing you said, when, when I define soundness as the gospel, if the formal teaching of the church is that you're saved not just by what you believe, but also by what you do, now we have a problem right? in terms of can there be life here? Um, yeah, right. And and when you look at Galatians, that's right. Um, this is the sine qua non, right? The thing without which, no. Um, we have to have this. There's more that we can say here. Um, I, I think this is a challenging I- instance. Um, 
I, I think we always want to remember um, my nuance there when I say um, a dead church can, can still contain true Christians, even if you were to say, I don't think that this entity, the Roman Catholic Church, is a true church, we still need to recognize that there can be true Christians, and there are true Christians in this communion, and, and we, should, um, we should not just immediately leap to conclusions. We need to actually understand the person we're talking to, um, and we'll return to that in a moment. I want to talk about one other piece here. So there are these three marks of the true church that I've been giving to you that are, um, I think, a good summary of biblical teaching and coming out of the Reformation. But in the Reformation, the big kind of counter view was this idea of apostolic succession, which is alive and well today, um, the teaching of apostolic succession. And Catholics have their version. Eastern Orthodox churches have their version. And it's basically, at least in the Catholic view, um, the claim that you can tell the true church by looking at um, this organizational principle of this unbroken chain of popes going all the way back to Peter. So Peter laid hands on the next person who laid hands on the next person all the way on up to the current pope. And so here you can tell the true church because the true church has um, always passed from one to the next um, and so there's a visible way of determining what the true, true church is. And therefore, at least classic Roman Catholic doctrine said that if you are broken, you've broken from this communion, then there is no hope of salvation for you. Um, so what are we to make of this? How, how, are we, how would we respond if somebody were to say, um, you know, where was your church before 1936? Which is when the OPC was founded, yeah. Yeah, I think they would point to Matthew 16, 17, or 18, where it says, um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So, yeah, then what does that actually mean, right? Yeah, but I think they would say, like, you know, the, Jesus is vesting Peter with this authority to, um, to be really the representative of the unbreakable, unshakable strength of the church. Um, but, yes, Anna? Yeah, so there's the historical, yeah, exactly. There, there were multiple times um, where there was a dis dissent as to the proper succession of the Pope. And at one point, there was actually three who were all simultaneously claiming to be um, Pope. So there's, there's historical issues with this claim. And what, what were you thinking, Betty? Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Before the Reformation, there, I mean, there was one church in the West. The um, Eastern Church broke off in the 11th century, and there were other splinter groups before that even. Um, but yeah, um, we should recognize that, that we are still heirs of that heritage, and we're thankful for the medieval and early church Christians, right? Yeah, Dan? Right. Right, right. 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 Yes. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm glad you're think, thinking of those things. Yeah, Josh? 
right. That's right. Yeah, when he talks about qualifications for who can be a church officer, he's talking about godly life. And he says, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in keep, keeping with the teachings, Titus 1. What that's showing is really, we do believe in apostolic succession, but very differently defined. Apostolic succession in terms of holding to the apostolic teaching, right? So we are an apostolic church in the sense that we are holding to what the apostles of Jesus taught, right? And that's how you recognize the true church. And so in the Reformation, where these two communions are going two different ways, um, you can tell the true church by where is the gospel, where is the teaching of the apostles. Yeah. And even if it is Peter, I mean, I think there's a couple ways you could take that passage, but um, even if it is Peter, it's confessing Peter, right? It's the Peter who's saying these things, the, these truths. And so if you, have, um, if you have a Peter who is no longer saying the, the truth about who is Christ and what has he come to do, then you've lost, you've lost what Jesus is saying, yeah. Yeah, that's another piece of this. Yeah, Galatians 1. Peter, he, he fell into error and was no longer um, eating with Gentile believers. And Paul calls him out on this, right? And even how, um, how do we see the interaction at Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem? It isn't that, like, Peter says, boom, here's what we're going to do regarding Gentile Christians. And everybody's like, okay, Peter, you, you're the one who gets to call the shots. No, there's ongoing debate, right? And there's ongoing discussion, um, and they come to a decision together. Yeah. Mm. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's not just about organizational unity. It's a really it's about the teaching of the apostles and your unity with them. Okay, so um, we believe in um, the true church being a church where there is apostolic truth, apostolic practice in terms of the sacraments, and accountability, um, church discipline. Within that big view of the church, and I hope you realize there are a lot of churches that could all fit into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, go. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, the one particular branch of them, yeah. Mm. Right. That's right. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, the, the three that you listed, I, I, I certainly, you know, the, the PCUSA has, has come out in their churchly decisions in so many different ways as against godly practice and against godly um, teaching of the word. Um, and uh, the, it's not the, the uh, global Methodists that are more conservative, but the, the more mainline um, United Methodist denomination also making very similar, extremely compromised decisions. Southern Baptists, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with them, but I don't, I don't think that they would fall in the same category. I, I think that that would not be a denomination, whereas a denomination, as far as I know, um, they've compromised on the sound teaching of the gospel and how, what is true, true teaching. I mean, we could debate this more. I, I don't want to get into it, but uh, I think that the, those are good examples of places where even if it's one of those, um, of the first two, we don't want to look at that church and say immediately, oh, that's a dead church. We want to actually like say, well, what are they actually preaching and teaching here? Um, let's, let's believe the best until we see um, otherwise, but still be on our guard. Um, now, th- I want to talk just as we think about the what is a church, and I've just given a very broad definition which a lot of churches would fit into. I, w- I want to talk about what our posture should be towards other churches. And this is just so important in the Reformed world because we care about sound doctrine, we care about teaching, we care about doing things according to the Bible. Um, at the same time, we should be seeking unity with as many Christians as possible, as far as possible. Because objectively, we are one with all Christians throughout the world. And here are just a few um, passages that say that. Um, Jesus praying, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What's he praying? He's praying that his people would not be fragmented, right? And so we should be praying. We should be yearning for the unity of the church. It's gotten to the point today where a lot of people hear um, the word ecumenical, which just means um, joining together of churches, and they say, oh, that person must be compromised. That person must be liberal. No. No. Jesus is wanting us to be one, but truly one, not just sort of saying, oh, let's all just agree to get along even though we are deeply not one <laughs> in terms of our teaching. No, there, there's, a, there's a unity of what? Well, Ephesians 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, and he goes on. And then again, 1 Corinthians 1.18, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree Again, he's wanting them to think the same thing, is what it says in Philippians 2. That all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. In what sense? Organizationally? That we all claim the name Jesus? No. That you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Okay, so we have this impulse in the scriptures of Jesus is one with the Father, and he's made every single individual Christian to be one with himself, And therefore, objectively, we all are one with each other. And so therefore, that unity that is objectively there should be something visible, something something that we show in our lives and how we live. Now, of course, we know this is really hard. And here are some reasons why. 
Um, Westminster Confession 25.4, this lowercase c, Catholic Church, in other words, universal church throughout the world, has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. What's it saying? What's the big idea? There's a huge variety in the churches as to how much they're actually clinging to the word and actually living and practicing the word. So that's a big problem in terms of unity, right? Sometimes our convictions will not allow us to work together with other Christians. For example, we can pray with many other Christians, many other evangelicals. We can sit down and we can pray together in the name of Jesus. We cannot pray, obviously, with Muslims. We cannot pray with Jews because we're not praying to the same God. Right? They have a completely different idea of who is God. But unfortunately, we cannot pray with a Catholic when they're praying to Mary. Neither can we pray with an Eastern Orthodox person who's praying to an icon. Why? Because those are unbiblical practices that go against our conscience and go against the word. Right? So even on that basic level of, hey, can we pray together? In some cases with other Christians, we can't even pray together or Obviously, we can't worship together, do a joint service, right, where we're administering the sacrament when the understanding of what's going on right there is completely different, right? Likewise, planting churches with an evangelical denomination that doesn't even practice church membership or that doesn't recognize churches as having authority over other churches. Can you understand the incredible practical challenges of something like that? Or we're saying, well... Um, here's this church and it's not doing, um, it's newly planted and it's not practicing um, things, doing things in the right way. We feel like we need to hold them accountable to that. And they say, we don't even recognize your authority over us. We don't think the churches should have authority over other churches. <laughs> okay, now we have a problem. <laughs> um, and likewise, um, allowing a minister from an Arminian denomination to fill pulpit where they're propounding doctrine that goes against our convictions of what the scriptures are teaching cannot have this. Um, we cannot partner in this way. So there's these practical obstacles to unity that we have to overcome as we're seeking unity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think, I think that that's another example of like, what are, when we're singing, we are singing our doctrine. We're singing what we believe. And, and there's a famous phrase from the early church that, um, I'm forgetting the, the Latin of it, basically it's, what is sung becomes what, it, what is believed. Uh, the law of, law of uh, singing or long, law of worship is the law, the law of belief. Um, so what, you, what you're singing eventually works its way into your heart, and that becomes what you actually live and believe. We have to be very careful about the words of the songs that we're singing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to not do that. Yeah. That's right, and that's another thing, right, is that denominations can change over time. And you can have a denomination that is really faithful, holding fast to the word, including 
Presbyterian Church as founded in the 1700s, faithfully preaching the gospel. But over time, over the 1800s, because they didn't practice discipline, particularly of their leaders, all of a sudden you get to the situation in the early 1900s where many Presbyterian ministers don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that he was born of a virgin or that the Bible is true. <laughs> uh, they think they know better. So, um, yeah. So as we're thinking about how we can partner with other churches, we want to. We have to deal with this issue. How full and detailed should our creed be? Because a creed, hopefully you remember this when Ms. Uh, Mitchell Gaskins did a, a class on this, um, on the importance of creeds, the importance of coming out and being public about what do we actually hold to in this church, right? One of the functions of a creed is to draw a line in the sand, saying, look, if you don't believe this, you cannot be a member here. Or if you don't believe this, you cannot be an officer of this church, right? If a creed is too full and too detailed, then it can create unnecessary division, right? It can alienate believers on secondary issues when we should be one. And there can be legitimate theological diversity when the scriptures are not very clear. So in our denomination, there are various views of how the end times will play out. Obviously, that's a classic example, right, of something where that's, that, there's a lot of pieces to put together and how you understand how the end times are going to, uh, you know, come out, uh, f work their way out. There are certain things that are absolutely clear. Jesus is coming back in the flesh. Jesus is going to make all things right. If you deny those things, obviously that's out of bounds. But there's lots of things where we can agree to disagree because the scriptures are not very clear. If you were to just, if you were to inscribe in the, in the you know, the, the standards of our church one particular view and say everybody who doesn't believe this can't be an officer in this church, well now we're excluding a lot of brothers who are gifted and ought to be able, we ought to be able to work together. So there's legitimate theological diversity, but if a creed is too minimal, it's too v vague and weak, then it waters down the witness of the church and it encourages unhealthy compromise. So you understand, like, what we hold to as a creed is one of the things that guides the extent to which we can partner with other churches. Um, yeah, and then there's, there's this, too. Um, separate denominations can be honoring to God at least as Jesus until Jesus returns. Have you ever thought about that? That separate denominations can actually honor Jesus? That's a kind of mind-blowing thought, right? Because we want to be one. But what would happen? Just think about this. What would happen if, as an, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we decided, okay, we're now going to be one with any other church that calls themselves a Christian church? Okay, now we're basically saying we, we support this other church being recognized as a legitimate church, right? When actually they're teaching false doctrine, right? So separation, uh, separate denominations can be an expression of purity, of, of desiring to be true to God's word. And yet we have to have the right reasons for being separate. And one of the things that really grieves me is um, that the PCA which has the exact same confession, catechisms as us. Even the same history in the sense that they both, uh, both of us um, trace our roots back to the very first Presbyterian denomination in America. And the, the split only really happened in the Civil War, largely because of political reasons. Now here we are today, 
where we have these two, you know, one that's rooted in the north, that would be the OPC, one rooted in the south, that would be the PCA, tried two times to join together. In one case, the OPC said no, the other case, the PCA said no, and everybody got really frustrated and we're not going to try anymore. I just think that's a really grievous thing. I mean, there, there were reasons in terms of like little nitpicky kinds of things, but I, I really think like here's an instance of where we are one. We should be organically one in our, our unity. And that's the last piece I wanted to share with you is that there's different levels of church unity. There's organic union where literally if you go to another OPC church, you are in members of the same church as that church in the sense that obviously you're not accountable to the same body of elders, but you are part of the same visible expression of Christ's body. Um, that's why we transfer each other with letters of transfer, and we, just, we don't even have to interview another person coming from another OPC church. Why? Because they're already one with us organically. We still interview people who come from other OP churches just for the sake of being able to shepherd them. Um, but, but yeah, there's organic union. That's the closest kind. That's what we should be seeking and praying for. Then there's fraternal relations, where we have very close relationships with other Reformed denominations, um, like the PCA, where we'd say they are churches of like faith and practice, where um, our confessions are basically the same. Like, remember, uh, Mr. Myron was part of the URC. They hold to the three forms of unity that you all know about now, thanks to a Sunday school class, right? And we would say that's basically the same system of doctrine as what we have in the Westminster Standard. So we're in very close partnership with them. But you can still have other forms of unity, too, even if you can't get to the level of fraternal relations. Um, you can work together in local and limited kinds of partnerships. Think about what we do with the Dayton Gospel Mission, right? Or when we pack boxes with uh, Operation Christmas Child. What are we doing? We're partnering with other evangelical churches in a limited way to show the love of Christ in those tangible kinds of ways. Do we agree with all the things that all of those other Christians um, teach? No. Um, can, we, can we say we're at the level of fraternal relations? No, there's too many too many substantive differences for us to be able to make that level of claim, but we can still work towards unity and honor them as our brothers and sisters. So this brings me to some questions. What should be our attitude towards other Christian churches, especially those that are not very close to us theologically? If we get what I'm saying here about the marks of the true church, about what Jesus teaches us, what should be our attitude towards other Christians, especially those who don't believe a lot of the same stuff as us? Yeah, there should be some caution. I think you're right. I think uh, we need to understand that the differences we have are substantive, right? Um, if you're not going to, for example, honor um, children as members of God's people um, and give them the sacrament of baptism as we believe we are commanded to do in Scripture, um, that's a substantive thing that has big implications for children, right? And for how parents think about children. Um, so, yes, caution. What else? What should, what should be our attitude towards other Christians? Yes. Yes, tell me more. Grace. Right. Yes.
Yeah. That's right. We want to honor them and understand we, we're, we're, we're convinced that what we believe and what the Westminster Confession, Confession summarizes is faithful summary of Scripture. Um, but they're likewise convinced, right? And if we, if we see unity on some of these core things about basically the five membership vows, the first five membership vows, we can say, like, look, we are one with this other person, and we should honor them as a Christian um, and not have this sense of suspicion towards them. I think that's a key, key thing. Like, instead, we should say, hey, fundamentally, we are on the same team, right? Um, good. Yeah, I think this is so important because I, I really want to drive this home. It's, a, it's just a horrible, nagging thing in the Reformed world of theological pride and of, of basically saying, we know more than you. <laughs> and that is not an appropriate attitude of, of, a, of a member of the body of Christ towards another member of Christ's body. We want to we hold to our convictions. We're not going to apologize for them. And we're, we're going to be thankful for what we have learned from the scriptures. And we want to hold fast to that, keep confessing all that the scriptures teach. We also want to love and honor other brothers and sisters. Well, there's some other things for us to reflect on there in terms of application. But I hope this encourages us um, that there are, are ways we can discern what is the body of Christ. Um, Jesus has not left us without teaching on this matter. So let's, let's go to him and ask his blessing as we seek to live these out. Lord, we thank you for the body, body of Christ. And we know it is a very wide and diverse body. And Lord, we are thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. Um, some of them practicing very different things than what we believe the scriptures command. Some of them uh, believing things that we think are simply wrong. And yet um, holding fast to Jesus and wanting to honor Jesus with their whole lives. And so, Lord, we pray that even while we want to be true to what the scriptures teach, we want to guard the, the, the deposit once for all entrusted to the saints of the word of God. We, we, at the same time, want to love your people and have grace towards your people and have the right attitude towards other brothers and sisters. Um, and the Lord, even be yearning for unity. We pray that you would help us to join you in that great prayer that you prayed, um, that we would be one as you are one. And we look forward to the great day when all of these, um, these current divisions between your people will be done away with. And when we really will believe the same thing with each other believer and all these places where we disagree will be erased and put in place of that will be a true understanding of your word that was there all along we look forward to that great day and we pray in the meantime that you'd help us to be a faithful church where these three marks and even the, the larger marks of a healthy church are to be found and that we'd not become prou proud and think that that would never happen to us, that we would lose those marks. Help us each generation to keep clinging to you. And we pray in Jesus' name.